0: Well, welcome to another Super Tuesday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and today is a big day because we get our first primary. Last Monday, the 15th of January, we had the Iowa caucuses, won quite handily on the GOP side by Donald Trump. He had 51% of the vote. And then there's like 100,000 people voting, so the percentages were fairly easy to figure out. Donald Trump had 51,000-ish votes, so he had uh, 51% of the vote. Ron DeSantis just barely edged out um, Nikki Haley for second place and then he pulled kind of a big deal I didn't mention this yesterday on the program because we were talking a lot about the sanctity of human life and and all the v- various other things we were discussing but over the weekend Ron DeSantis pulled out of the election now that's it's pretty noteworthy when you consider in January of 2022 I was here in this room and I was up the road a couple of paces at the uh, His Channel studios in Anaheim, where our friends at hischannel.com, I was the newscaster there for about six months on the national news, and I really felt seriously at that moment that Ron DeSantis had an excellent chance of becoming the GOP nominee. I thought it was the best interest for the Republican Party. I really honestly believe that we were a year away from just out, removed from the January 6th debacle, and I really just felt it was the right thing to do for Donald Trump to get out of the GOP and just leave. And I still do. Um, but if the do- Donald Trump turns out to be the nominee, then you have to look at this and say, okay, what do you do? Is there a third party unity or, or not? Ron DeSantis on Sunday suspended his campaign and pledged all of his support to Donald Trump. Vivek Ramaswamy last week came in fourth in Iowa, suspended his campaign, pledged all his support to Donald Trump. Doug Bertram, North Dakota, suspended his presidential campaign, pledged all his support to Donald Trump. Tim Scott, the newly engaged Tim Scott, senator from South Carolina, congratulations, senator and his soon-to-be, his bride-to-be, pulled out of the race. I remember where they were doing the debates, and Tim Scott was in the uh, first round of debates, and uh, someone asked him, I think it might have even been... He was asked the question, would you consider uh, something about the vice presidential type of thing? And I think his comment was something like, no, I don't want Donald Trump to be my vice president. (laughs) It was kind of a a kind of snarky look. But Tim Scott from South Carolina, current ranking senator from South Carolina, knowing that the former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, is still in the running. uh, Tim Scott has pledged his full support for Donald Trump. As a matter of fact, yesterday they were campaigning together. So what's going to happen? Well, uh, gra- the Granite State, New Hampshire, is traditionally where Iowa does caucuses, which are these kind of individual voting things that happen all around the country. Uh, New Hampshire has a full-blown primary like we do here in the People's Republic of California, and um, they are, they're up for grabs. Now, New Hampshire does not have a lot of electoral punch. I mean, when you get right down to it, I mean, th- New Hampshire has a tradition for you know, uh, the, you know, being first, But in in terms of doing these things, but when it comes down to it, um, there's not a lot at stake in New Hampshire, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, The the reason is, uh, well, you know, it's predominantly Democrat state. They don't have a lot of electoral votes. I think it's like four, you know, it's all based on population. It's really teeny tiny. Uh, I'm looking at, it's funny, this is really funny. Uh, It's old Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, Encyclopedia Britannica, their most recent thing that came up on this Google search, says that California has 54 electoral votes. Eh. (laughs) It's not 54. It is actually uh, 52. New Hampshire does have four electoral votes. So what's up for grabs today isn't a whole lot. But what makes it interesting is a couple of different things. First of all, it's basically a two-horse race now with Donald Trump versus Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley says, no, I am not bowing out of the race, number one, and no, I am not interested in being the vice presidential candidate. Now, you and I are old enough to remember when there was a time, th- think back to the 1980 election, Ronald Reagan had pushed hard for the Republican nomination in 1976. Remember, he pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed for uh, some sp- special thing at the Republican convention, and he wound up not getting his way. Gerald Ford got the nomination, wound up running against Jimmy Carter. Came in a lot closer than a lot of people thought he would, but you know, we figured after the scandal of Watergate, there's no way a Republican could win. Ford and uh, Nelson Rockefeller almost pulled it off. But then in 1980, it was Ronald Reagan versus George H.W. Bush former director of the cia and george hw bush i didn't think had any kind of appeal whatsoever but he did have a lot of political oomph and so when he was basically coming in second in all the primaries and ronald reagan was coming in first then when it finally got to the point where reagan was going to get the nomination immediately turned to his most fierce rival and said will you be my running mate which he did eight years of George H.W. Bush as vice president, languishing in the shadows. And then when he ran with Dan Quayle in 1988, uh, you know, the old Michael Dukakis thing had nothing on on the Bush campaign. And then were it not for some internal fighting in the GOP, remember, Bill Clinton got 43% of the popular vote in 1992. George H.W. Bush and Ross Perot, if they'd run together, they'd kick Dan Quayle off and put Ross Perot on. They got 57% combined of the the general population vote. H.W. Bush got 37%, I believe, and Ross Perot got 20%. They split the Republican ticket and Bill Clinton got eight years in the office. Anything could happen. Nowadays, though, here's Nikki Haley. The Donald Trump-Nikki Haley ticket, I think, would be unbeatable, except for the fact that they are have a rather contentious relationship. You'll recall that when she was leaving the office of being the uh, governor of the Pal- Palmetto State, is that South Carolina? And, um, and she was offered the position of U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Apparently, that didn't used to be a cabinet position. And Nikki Haley said, I will take this job on two conditions. First condition is that this is a cabinet position. And secondly, that I write my own speeches. Every time you saw that great video, the two years she served, the first two years of the Trump administration, when Nikki Haley served as U.S. ambassador to the U.N., every one of those fiery, dagger driven, flame throwing speeches that she fired off at all those terrorist nations in the Middle East, those were Nikki Haley's words. She was not doing the bidding of Donald J. Trump. And he sat back and went, dang, (laughs) you're good. She is not interested in being his running mate, and I think that could be to her peril. Their personalities are very similar. My hunch is what you're going to see with Donald Trump. He's not going to pick Ron DeSantis. Gone are the days when two white guys who are the top of the heap of their voting thing are going to get anywhere. Just forget it. I mean, it's it's not going to happen. My prediction is if Donald Trump winds up being the GOP nominee and there is unity in the GOP that says, this is our guy. We're not going to try to form a third party. There's not going to be a constitution. Remember, all the Trump supporters are saying, boy, if he doesn't get the nomination, we need a third party. But then if he gets the nomination, we don't need a third party. I'm sure there are a lot of people. I think we need a third party. I think we need a fourth party. Quite frankly, the two major parties have let Americans down massively. And we need parties other than Green Party, Peace and Freedom Party, Constitution Party, whatever you want to call them, the ones who get just enough interest to wind up getting enough campaign, federal election campaign matching funds. Remember Ralph Nader used to do that every year. He'd run on the Peace and Freedom ticket and he'd get 2% of the popular vote, but they'd get enough federal matching funds to keep on going out there and being a thorn in somebody's side. Is there a credible amount of people who would vote for a Constitution Party? George Barna's research indicates that 80% of Americans, whether Republican or Democrat, basically all want the same things. It's the 10% on the fringe fundamental right and the 10% on the fringe progressive left that get all the headlines and make everybody all confused. So New Hampshire is today. We'll have results for you tomorrow. Um, interesting sidebar, by the way. Of course, Donald Trump's on the ballot, and everybody who pulled out is still on the ballot. You have to file that paperwork months in advance. And so, Ron DeSantis will show up on there. Chris Christie will be on there, uh, in addition to Donald Trump. They may actually get some votes. It won't matter, my prediction. Here's what's interesting, though, about what's going to happen in the Granite State today. Um, Joe Biden is not on the ballot in in New Hampshire. Yeah, Joe Biden is not on the ballot. What? The Democrat Party doesn't believe in Joe Biden? What is this? It's not really a shock. It is not very common, but it's not a shock. And I read this back before Christmas. The Democrat National Committee has decided not to put Joe Biden on the ballot in New Hampshire, not because they don't think he can win, but they didn't want to spend the money. They didn't want to put his name on the ballot, have to pay the fees that you have to do to campaign. Campaigning costs money. And then run all the ads and this, that, and the other thing, vote for Joe Biden. The thought is that they are convinced that they're gonna get so much support from New Hampshire that they don't need to put him on the ballot. And quite frankly, there is a write-in uh, candidacy group where he may or may not wind up getting those delegates pledged. Now, there's nobody else really running against him. I mean, there are a couple of the candidates who've announced their candidacy. Uh, it's too late, apparently, for Joe Manchin out of West Virginia to run. As a Democrat, I tell you, and I said it, I will say it again, if Joe Manchin of uh West Virginia were to run for president of the United States as an independent or as a new party or something like that, I would look seriously into that candidacy. The last liberal Democrat who actually does support faith and values sometimes, he's a moderate. He's certainly not a conservative guy. I don't know that he and his wife Gail are people of faith. They may be, but I just like his style. Yeah, I know. Now I'm going to get an email. Roger wants a Democrat. No, I have no party preference. Please know that. I will vote Republican probably 99 times out of 100 because I line up more with Republican values. But I don't have a party preference. And I think as Christians, we should be loyal, as Reverend Samuel Rodriguez says, we should be loyal more to the lamb than the donkey or the elephant. Anyway, so Joe Biden will get written in on some ballots. We'll have all the updates for you tomorrow on the Bottom Line Show. And then of course, this week on the National Crawford Roundtable podcast. One issue that has come to light, though, in the church that is a very, very big concern no one's voting on, we're just reporting it and talking about it more, and that is domestic abuse. High-profile Bible teachers like Beth Moore and others have said, boy, the Southern Baptist Convention has a big issue with it. There are a lot more people in the church who are speaking up now saying, hey, there's emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and pastors are overwhelmed with what to do. How do we handle this you don't just want a family to leave but at the same time you want to say okay well i want to be able to give you good godly counsel as to how to handle this situation pastor chris moles is a senior pastor of chapel in winfield of the chapel in winfield west virginia he is also a certified biblical counselor with the american association of biblical counselors and he is the editor of a brand new book that i think is going to help pastors it's going to help families on this whole issue. it's simply put, Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse, a Guide Toward Protection, Refuge, and Hope. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and Pastor Chris is going to join me on the other side of this break to talk about the need for churches to address the issue of domestic abuse. It's coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. I can't say enough about pre-born and i'm going to keep talking about them because i love what this organization stands for basically what they stand for is the truth the truth and the science the truth and the science and being honest about the situation that a woman is facing when she is facing an unplanned pregnancy did you know this is a problem within the church 60 percent of the women who have abortions in the united states do so after already having given birth at least once 54 percent of the women who have abortions in the united states are church-going women if not Bible-believing, born-again Christians. So what does that say? It tells me that we in the church need to do a better job of educating people as to what's really going on when a woman tests positive for pregnancy, as they say. Go to a pre-born clinic, they'll do the pregnancy test, then they will do an ultrasound. And the ultrasound technology will show you the pictures of the child in the womb, and then they'll tell you the three options, not the two, that the abortion clinics. Abortion clinics say either you're gonna be a parent that's gonna be expensive and ruin your life, just have an abortion. The third option is adoption, and Preborn recommends adoption every single time a woman comes in with an unplanned pregnancy. Eighty-five percent of the women who go to a Preborn clinic and have the ultrasound choose life for their baby. You can help in this effort. Make your one-time donation to Preborn today. Go to kbrightradio.com and click on the Preborn banner. Today on the Bottom Line Show, we're going to get into a conversation about something. I'll, I'll preface this right at the start. By saying that if there are younger listeners who are uh, with you, uh, maybe in the car, maybe you're doing the uh, pickup from school run, or uh, just whatever your situation is, uh, it, we're going to get down and dirty, kind of have an honest conversation about how to care for families caught in domestic abuse. Um, and this is a, a certainly not for younger listeners, but it is a very, very important topic. Chris Moles is with me today here on The Bottom Line. Chris is senior pastor of Chapel in Winfield in West Virginia. Uh, the chapel in Woodfield, West Virginia, ordained minister with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and also a certified biblical counselor with the American Certified, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Uh, He is the editor of a brand new book, and he's a contributor to it as well, that talks about this very issue of, the title is straight ahead, Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse, A Guide Toward Protection, Refuge, and Hope. And we've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Pastor Chris Moles, welcome to The Bottom Line Show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here, and hopefully we can be a help. Well, uh, let's talk about
0: this. I mean, you've got the biblical counseling background. Of course, you're a pastor. You're also a counselor. What have you seen, say, in the last decade that it may be uh, one of the most telling trends that this is becoming either more of a problem or people are willing to talk about it and try to do something about it?
1: Yeah, I I would say it's the latter. Um, I I don't know that we're going to ever see a a spike, say, in domestic abuse, although there was a small elevation in criminal charges during the COVID pandemic. Right, But um, honestly, this has been a a story and an issue and a sin that's been really as old as families. I mean, we even know back uh, in Genesis when uh, the story of Cain and Abel is really the first recorded act of family violence. And It has continued as people's hearts are hardened and their perceptions and worldviews are corrupted. So I wouldn't say there's an increase, uh, especially within the church, but there is an increased awareness. I would say in the last decade in particular, the number of resources, speakers, uh, experts, and case volume, as far as our case wisdom, has grown exponentially, which I think is a benefit to the church.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to get a, a working definition, if you will, because whenever we hear domestic abuse, uh, automatically, the first thing we think of is, you know, a woman who's being physically sure. assaulted by her, her husband or by the man in her life. Does it extend beyond that? I mean, in terms of verbal or, you know, kind of manipulation, even spiritual abuse, how, do, how are we defining domestic abuse in the church these days?
1: Sure. I think that the trick with definitions is to, to be reminded that when you encounter one case of abuse, you've encountered one case of abuse. the The complexities are so distinct that it would be really hard to say this is exactly what abuse is in every context. However, right. uh, you know, if you read through, in particular, this this book, uh, we have a variety of authors who have attempted to define the term over the years. Myself, Darby Strickland, uh, Greg Wilson, we've all uh, taken attempts. For me, uh, my definition has routinely been. A domestic abuse begins with an abuse of power manifested in selfishly motivated patterns of behavior intended to exercise or maintain control over one's partner. That Mm -hmm. would include, obviously, aspects of physical coercion or Mm -hmm. sexual coercion, which has a great deal of uh, gross, sinful violations, a wide uh, range of effects and impacts. But to your question, it also entails aspects of coercion that perhaps uh, manipulate isolate, um, use finances, use the children. It's really an aspect of one partner using an advantage or power to control another, which secondarily to the other part of your, your question there, that's really why criminally, culturally, and even in the church, we see this as primarily, not exclusively, but primarily occurring from men towards women. And I just think it's because for men, abuse is low hanging fruit. We, we tend to have, a creative advantage being bigger, faster, stronger, and a positional advantage in society and in particular in the church. Right, that's a great counsel from Pastor Chris Moles today.
0: Here on The Bottom Line, we're talking about the book that he's the general editor for and contributor to. It's a brand new one from our friends at New Growth Press called Caring for Families, and domestic abuse, a guide toward protection, refuge, and hope. And there's a link for the book up at the thebottomlineshow.com. As you were describing that, Chris, I mean, in terms of what the definition of abuse is, it, something just popped into my mind, and it's it, it's one of those things where I, I'm, I'm seeing a lot more of the, I don't want to call it double standard, but maybe the double entendre with regard to the way terms like this are, are used. You mentioned the obvious low-hanging fruit of abuse, which is a man who has a physical advantage or a, you know, a positional advantage. And then at the same time, we'll go to a Christian comedy night and there's the comedian up there, you know, poking fun at the husbands and wives and everything like that. And the henpecked husband is like, you know, it's a punchline. But we don't realize that there may be some verbal or emotional, psychological coercion going on there that can also I mean, you have to wonder what feeds the other. I mean, I don't want to do a false equivalency, but is that the kind of thing you're addressing in this book is that it's far more wide ranging than just what you've seen on TV?
1: So we we will stick, and we actually have a section explaining why we narrow in on historical understanding of domestic Mm -hmm. abuse. Uh, The greatest, uh, some of the greatest rationale for that is obviously it is historical in that men have typically used power to dominate their partners. It's also uh, statistically the most accurate as far as dominance goes, and then also within our framework as conservative. Christians, uh, we come from a complementarian background. And so we believe it's important to hold the most responsible person accountable. And so we would say, and I don't want to speak for the entire team, but I'll speak for myself. It's a bit disingenuous to claim to be complementarians and then always mutualize abuse. So Hmm. really understand that because there's aspects of roles and differences between men and women we want to really hold people accountable, and that doesn't mean that, that we don't see it. Each of us, and we say this in the book, have seen women who have been abusive towards their partners. However, it is quite different as it requires some aspect of power, uh, some aspect of control, and often reduces the other person's agency, which is much more difficult to do. Um, that's why women who are abusive are much more likely to abuse children or mm-hmm. the elderly. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the, okay, the, we, we
0: all sorts of rabbit trails coming up now because we're just talking husbands and wives. But then, of course, there's the elderly and the child abuse. Well, I want to get into the churches, though. I mean, because this is something that you're uh, ostensibly promoting as a a resource that churches can have. And I, I don't, if I had a dollar for every pastor I've spoken with who said, "Man." Uh, they did not prepare us for this in seminary, right? I mean, it was hermeneutics, homiletics, you know, here to, here's how to balance a budget. But when I see the number of people who are coming in and saying, Pastor, I need to talk to you. We need to talk to you. We've got this situation at home. It's just, it, it's, it's ongoing. How has the church responded historically to domestic abuse? And what are some of the more positive changes that are coming into light right now?
1: Sure. I'd like to kind of back up and address the the seminary comment for just a second, because I think this will be helpful. One of my favorite professors in Bible college said something that has stuck with me now, you know, almost, you know, 25, 26 years later, she said, Chris, we don't simply teach the Bible. We teach people the Bible. Hmm. One of the aspects of hermeneutics or homiletics as a, as a sheer science removes us from the need for practical theology, that has implications from the text and applications to the people attempting to live out the text. And so that is a, a foundational change that I think needs to happen in pastoral ministry uh, from simply do you handle the word to do you shepherd people uh, with the word. And that's one of the goals really of this book and others like it is to help pastoral ministry, like pastoral um, caregivers, whether it be counselors, ministers, Uh, or others to just handle the word of God well in the shepherding practice of people who are being harmed. And that's one of the inspirations behind, you know, writing, uh, caring for families was that pastors could have practical applicable knowledge. Now, with that being said, historically, uh, the church has had a pretty poor track record with the issue of domestic abuse or spousal abuse from, uh, actually promoting aspects of abuse, uh, hundreds of years ago in some contexts within the Christian church to, uh, most recently, I think the most recognizable is the willingness to hide, minimize, deny, or mutualize abuse. And I would say in the last 10 years, uh, what God has been doing is raising up voices and individuals again, through case wisdom. And I think a lot of this uh, has to do with the bravery and the courage, uh, of victims and survivors who are willing to give voice to their story and their experiences so that we as pastors, and in particular, we as men, who have a difficult time understanding the concepts of loss of agency or threat uh, that maybe some of our sisters experience, and helping us understand at least how we're living day to day with an oppressive Person, So I would say that's the biggest area of increase in the church is case wisdom. We're encountering the problem more. We're counting the, countering the problem from more experienced and skilled perspectives than I think we ever have in the past. Now, with that comes some changes. And as you can imagine, every church and uh, every institution, I should say, struggles with changes. And so there will always be some folks who are struggling to recognize the need to confront individuals who are harming mm-hmm. others. Or to uh, take things one step at a time, like let's address the abuse before we address the marriage or any other subsequent problem. So that's probably the big learning curve we still have is that not while all sin is sin, not all sin should be addressed uh, simultaneously. There are sometimes some sequential things that need to happen as we're kind of un winding the bird nest of problems that is destructive uh, marriages and domestic abuse situations.
2: Boy, that's such a
0: great vivid image, uh, physical image, uh, the visual of the bird's nest, if you will, and and how on difficult it is to untangle, and yet at the same time, how necessary it is. Absolutely. Pastor Chris Moles is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. His book is called Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse, A Guide Toward Protection, Refuge, and Hope. We have a link for the book up at the thebottomlineshow.com on the other side of this break, especially if you're a pastor who's listening to this conversation, you might be thinking, okay, where do I start? You know, someone comes into my office and says, we have this issue, or an individual does, and Oftentimes, we're looking for the Band-Aids in the medicine cabinet, saying, how do we just you know, stop the bleeding here? I want to get in, give Pastor Chris a chance to kind of air out a little bit and kind of explain why it's important, as he mentioned, to sometimes treat the, the abuse before we start looking at the marriage or looking at the other relationships that are impacted by it. More of my conversation with Pastor Chris Moles coming up next as The Bottom Line continues welcome back to the bottom line show i'm roger marsh a serious conversation today this hour uh, featuring pra- pastor chris moles who's the general editor of a brand new book called caring for families caught in domestic abuse a guide for churches toward protection refuge and hope there's a link for the book up at the thebottomlineshow.com we have not one but two copies of this book we're giving away today 800-227-5278 800-227-5278 800-227-5278 the number to get you through to the bottom line Uh, This book breaks it down, some of the comic tactics of domestic abusers, a biblical response to them. If you're a pastor that seems like most of the marriages and marriage counseling requests you're getting are involving this issue of domestic abuse, this is a resource for you. If you don't need it for your own home, get it for your pastor, donate it to your church. We have two copies of the book, Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. Here's Dennis Wilson of Wilson Financial Services with a reminder that your investments do more than just make money. They actually change lives.
2: This Christmas, we gave our family the gift of life. So I thought, let's do the same for our Wilson Financial clients. A way of saying thank you for being in partnership with us in the ministry. What we're going to do to honor our clients is we're going to fund 100 ultrasounds per month each month for the next 12 months through pre-born. Also, each quarter we're going to buy an ultrasound machine, and at the end of the year, those machines will be saving an average of 1,600 children per year. We do this to honor and inform our clients of this great ministry and to say thank you for being our clients and being our friends.
0: Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. Pastor Chris Moles is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Chris is senior pastor of the chapel in Winfield, West Virginia, where it is currently balmy eight degrees and snowing, which is that this is atypical for this type of time of year. Chris, how long have you been in uh, West Virginia?
1: Uh, the majority of my life, I was actually wow. born and raised here. I'm talking to you from the Moles family farm. My uh, wow, my kids and I moved back out here a few years ago to take care of part of my grandparents farm.
0: Love it. I love it. I think that's fantastic. And this curriculum that you have been working on as part of your not only being a pastoral ministry uh, guy, uh, but also a certified biblical counselor with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors and the International Association of Biblical Counselors. And and this, this new book that you are the general editor of, you're a contributor to. I know it's going to help a lot of pastors who are helping people in terms of counseling, but also uh, people who uh, have been victimized by domestic abuse and uh, looking for just looking for some answers. The book is called Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse, A Guide Toward Protection, Refuge and Hope. There's a link for the book up at the TheBottomLineShow.com. Uh, during the break, Chris and I were talking about how many, you know, this kind of, it takes a village concept. Oftentimes there are people who when they're facing a uh, uh, challenging situation are looking for quote unquote, the counselor or the book or, you know, the film, whatever it is, that's going to help them on the road to recovery. But I know you and your Collective team, uh, look at more of a collective approach, a team approach. Talk about why that's important because uh, I'm sure that is a kind of a relief for a pastor who might be confronted with the fact that um, I'll use a hypothetical situation, but I don't think it's unrealistic. Um, someone who is connected to a family in the church that's pretty prominent, uh, maybe major donors to the, and yet there is a reported abuse going on here that needs to be addressed. And the last thing the pastor wants to do. Is tell the money bags family, hey, uh, you know we've got to deal with this issue, but there's a real need for help and hope. Kind of pick up the the story from there, if you would,
1: Pastor Chris. Sure, and I think that's you know the team based approach or a community coordinated response is one of the major things I brought from my experience in the secular world. I had taught uh, in criminal corrections for several years, and the CCR community coordinated response or a team based approach was the most effective means that we had to address accountability by getting prosecutors and law enforcement and counselors and ed- interventionists, everybody together to to case review and to, to make sure that our client, as it were, was following the instructions. Well, coming into a biblical counseling world, it just made sense not to leave the pastor in an isolated environment with right. a totally manipulative person and a desperate person who's suffering. One, you really are not going to be able to, uh, hear every aspect of the story without the potential of colluding with an abusive individual or perhaps disappointing uh, the one who's suffering. So getting a team to surround the individuals once a disclosure is made, I think, is the best means in which to really meet as many of the needs as we can and to guard each other from the dangers and the temptations involved in the work. And that's why we formed a team uh, to construct this book, because we wanted to model What it looks like to have a pastor like myself involved, a counselor who specializes in working with men who are abusive, counselors who specialize in trauma care and why it's essential to understand that, advocates that walk alongside victims and represent them, uh, helping them communicate, dialogue, and receive resources, as well as biblical counselors and church-based coordinators. All of that represented, uh, that team is represented in the pages of that book as a means of illustrating to the church how we need each other, that all of us are better than one of us when it comes to caring for families caught in domestic abuse. It also gives us an initial framework for pastors and churches so that they can use this book as kind of their first foray into the work. And then of course I chose authors and contributors who are published or in the field with an expertise and are biblical so that you can then spread out from our book to find other resources to specialize
0: you know it's interesting as we're talking with pastor chris moles today here on the bottom line about the book he is the general editor for and a contributor to the book is called caring for families caught in domestic abuse a Guide Toward Protection, Refuge, and Hope. Chris, I was thinking of the different generational impact uh, that this would have, not only the counseling, but also just the abuse itself. I mean, the fact that if you've got an abusive husband, for example, and of course his wife has been victimized by it, his kids grew up in it, maybe now they've grown or they've moved out and they've, they're have they getting in their own families. I was talking with a, a dear friend of mine a couple of years ago about this very issue, how when he was first married, uh, he was very, very um, just harsh to the point of abusive in corporal punishment with his kids. And when his wife asked him why he was doing he said, well, this is how my dad you know, disciplined me. And I'm giving him a spanking. She said, no, you are beating him up. Yeah. And he said, I had to take a step back and say, wow, I did not realize how physically abusive my father was. We just thought he was strict. Sure. you know and so i'm sure that there's a lot of that and now as you know the, some of these patterns are coming to the repeat or break the cycle point this may be a good resource and a good topic of conversation for folks in that situation as well
1: absolutely so you know some some people in our tribe will use terms like generational sin some shy away from it but there's there's no denying that abusive behavior can be normalized whether it is from the perspective of using power and control to get what i want because let's face it it works bullying mm. does work yep. in the short term, or perhaps having expectations of one's partner, such as young ladies who experienced abuse or witnessed their mother being abused, normalizing that behavior and excusing sinful behavior in their mm. uh, marriage or their engagement, which is all mm. the more reason why the church should be educated and willing to engage at every level of relationships in which we're called to, to help, to speak into, and to hold accountable those that are uh, perpetrating these acts. Mm. There's some great information
0: in this book called Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse. Pastor Chris Moles is the general editor of this book, and we've got a link for it up at the thebottomlineshow.com. I recommend it for your household if this is your story or if you're a pastor. Chris, we got a couple minutes left in our time together. Talk about what's a good effective strategy. You mentioned the team concept, but especially for churches that are encountering this and they're hearing it more and more and realizing that this is not just a question of how do you balance the book it might actually impact your bottom line with a family that makes a lot of donations or they, they they're the super volunteers you know they're always helping out but they've got this dark secret how can a church get embrace this and start to help victims of domestic abuse
1: yeah a few things come to mind one is uh embrace education be willing to expose your church family to concepts and to individuals who speak to this topic regularly i think it's important that every pastor speak publicly against all aspects of abuse. It, it is, in our opinion, a demonic distortion of the way God created relationships. Right. Yeah. So it's important that we speak publicly, but uh, we need to make sure we have a ministry response in place before uh, we speak publicly, so that we can respond to the need when it occurs. So education is is very key to helping the church move forward i love that and it's part of that educational journey and your pursuit i highly
0: recommend the book that pastor chris moles has been discussing with me today here on the bottom line it's called caring for families caught in domestic abuse a guide toward protection refuge and hope there's a link for it up at the thebottomlineshow.com nothing but five star ratings on amazon and, and and chris for you and your team for the uh, a topic that is this sensitive and uh, delicate to deal with in that regard but at the same time understanding that it's vital Uh, that people who are facing domestic abuse or are abusers and are out of control and and need to be brought into accountability. Uh, This is a great first step, I would imagine, for a lot of churches and a lot of families, and I commend you and your team for putting this together. Uh, Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse, A Guide Toward Protection, Refuge, and Hope is up at TheBottomLineShow.com. Pastor Chris Moles, great to get to meet you. Thanks so much for the work that you guys did on this project and for being with us today here on The Bottom Line.
1: Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure and uh, our team sends their greetings and hope that we can be a help uh, to the church.
0: Boy, this is a difficult conversation to have, but it's a very important one too. For families who are wrestling with domestic abuse, for marriages that are being ravaged and churches that are being impacted by this as well. I'm thankful I'm thankful again to Pastor Chris Moles for uh, not only editing this book and being one of the participating counselors who wrote in it, but also uh, providing a conversation with us here today about it. The book is called Caring for Families Caught in Domestic Abuse, A Guide Toward Protection, Refuge, and Hope. There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we have not one but two copies of this book that we're giving away today. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we actually have some good news to report. Um, Good news regarding a case in San Diego uh, involving a couple of teachers who were... um, They were basically standing up for their faith and also standing up for students who in this one middle school in Escondido Union School District, uh, for a number of students there who have had issues with transgender dysphoria and the question of whether or not their parents should be informed. Uh, Paul Jonah is the attorney of the Thomas More Society who's been representing the case of teachers Elizabeth Mirabili and Lori Ann West. And we have good news to report. Paul's going to join me on the other side of this break with an update as to whether or not Elizabeth and Lori Ann have actually made it back in the classroom. Yet a judge ordered back in September they should be. He really doubled down last week. We'll get an update on the case coming up next as the bottom line continues. Well a special God and country segment of the bottom line show today, especially as it pertains to religious liberty. Let let no one ever get the impression that here at the bottom line show we are so happy, that we really want to, you know, try to stir things up in court. But there is a difference between you know doing that type of thing and actually standing up for religious liberty for your rights that are legally and constitutionally protected. And joining me today here on the program right now is attorney Paul Jonah, who was involved in a case last December we were telling you about involving a couple of women who are Christians who teach in public school in San Diego County. And uh, had to go to court because of the fact that they uh, were basically being forced to violate their Christian values with regard to the school district and the state's transgender policies. And we have an update on that case. Paul Jonah, welcome back to The Bottom Line Show.
3: Great to be with you. Thank you, Roger.
0: This was a good case in the sense that we kind of like the original ruling from uh, Judge Roger Benitez of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of California in the initial ruling back in September. But there was a ruling, I believe, was handed down last week or the week prior in this case that we wanted you to give us an update on, Paul, if you would. Go ahead, if you would.
3: Sure. So Judge Benitez issued a groundbreaking ruling in September of last year in joining um, Policies at a school district, which we now know are very common nationwide that require teachers to withhold from parents their students' gender identity. So basically teachers are participating actively in deceiving parents and keeping the, the secrets, um, from them. And these are children as young as five. This is a K through eight school district. And so the court, we were, we brought a lawsuit on behalf of two Christian teachers who objected to the policy didn't want to participate in in lying and also just felt it was harmful to children to let them engage in a social transition essentially in secret without their parents even knowing the court agreed with us, issued a thirty six page ruling joining the policy under the First Amendment, saying that they violate the First Amendment and saying that they constitute a trifecta of harms they harm the parents, the students, and of course the teachers who we represent and you would think in the face of a federal court order, the school district would get in the compliance pretty quick and get the teachers back to work. But instead, they dragged their feet. They found reasons to keep them out of school. And so we were forced a few months later to bring a contempt application to hold the school district officials in contempt of court for violating the order. And the court didn't um, you know, want to go so far as to hold them in contempt because that's a very extreme remedy and penalty, really, but what he did was he ordered them to immediately reinstate Lori and Elizabeth to their teaching positions and um, that was a very a good thing and we're very very pleased with that order so now they're they're able to get back to work which they were supposed to be able to do last September but thank God it's it's finally
0: Happening. Well, yeah, absolutely. When we think about this, Paul Jonah represents Elizabeth Mirabelli and Laurie Ann West. They both were teachers, have been teachers, and have been on administrative leave. I mean, it's, it's not like they got fired and we had to kind of reestablish them. We just had to get them back in the classroom at their jobs at the Rincon Middle School in Escondido Union School District. But last week, uh, Judge Roger Benitez actually said, hey, enough is enough. Stop playing games with us. These women both missed an entire semester of instruction with their students because of the school district and the state just dragging their feet. Is, is that there, there has to be, I, I would imagine, uh, Paul, there, there, is there some kind of legal uh, recourse that they can take and that you can take? I mean, knowing that the basically this ruling, from what I understand, is that the plaintiffs have to go back to classroom. They're supposed to go back last Tuesday and that uh, it... it in the ruling that I'm reading from the Christian Post, plaintiff's request for attorneys' fees has been denied. That that seemed a little a little harsh. It seemed like you guys would have your fees covered as well. Was that an, was that something you were anticipating though? The judge would hand down.
3: Well, we're going to get our fees in this case at the end. Um, no question about it, because under if you bring a civil rights claim and you prevail, they, there's a statutory requirement that you're awarded fees. But we try to get interim fees for holding them in contempt since the court didn't sure. hold them in contempt we didn't really push the fees issue but we are going to be yeah we're going to be awarded our fees in this case for sure
0: okay well that's good to hear paul jonah is with me today here on yeah. the bottom line uh he is part of the legal team and part of the uh, uh nonprofit organization the thomas moore society that is representing uh these two christian teachers in the public school and i would imagine paul are you hearing from more teachers who are saying we're thrilled that elizabeth and laurianne are back in class and we want to, you know, we're running into the same type of thing. How common is what these women experienced, and how common is it for someone like them to then follow up by, you know, contacting your office or another Christian legal team to say, hey, we, we need the court's muscle behind us here because our rights are constitutionally protected?
3: Yeah, teachers um, at the school district are extremely supportive of Elizabeth and Lori, and they're telling them, you know, they're getting a lot of positive feedback at school but be, but nationwide we're getting calls and inquiries from lawyers from from other teachers from parents from people who are really excited about this ruling because it's it's in many ways a groundbreaking ruling and you know there's school districts that are being more proactive trying to pass policies that actually require you know it's kind of common sense but actually require teachers to inform um parents if there's if their children are transitioning. So it doesn't even give them the option, really. And there's school districts doing that, and there's school districts that are facing opposition, and, and we're getting calls in every sort of direction you can imagine, but it, mm-hmm. I think there's a, what we're seeing is a shift in the way people are understanding these policies. They're not, they sort of were passed largely in secret, and certain left-wing activists have been pushing them. And in our state, unfortunately, in California, the governor and the attorney general have been very, um, you know, this has been a top priority for them, despite all the problems in our state. So, so much of a priority that they even threatened to sue our school district that we're, you know, that we're sued. They threatened to sue them if they don't continue to enforce these gender identity policies. And so, we had to add them to the case. Now, next week we'll be filing. Actually, this week possibly we'll be filing an amended complaint naming Governor Newsom and Attorney General Bonta, because they're really the source of this policy. And they're going after school districts who dare to oppose their agenda. So it's we got the momentum behind us now with this ruling, and so it's time to just put an end to this once and for all.
0: I'm talking with Paul Jonah today here on The Bottom Line. Paul is the attorney who is part of the legal team actually driving this uh, case against the Escondido Union School District, Rincon Middle School, uh, the— verdict handed down by Judge Roger Benitez of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of California, ruling that they should be allowed, Elizabeth Mirabelli and Lori West should be allowed to return to their jobs at Rincon Middle School. And it's interesting you mentioned the secretive part of this, Paul, that I would love to kind of circle back around on, because I want to make sure I heard this correctly. I mean, we we don't want, we're agitated by this already, but we want to make sure we're agitated for the right reasons, (laughs) you know, as opposed to just kind of going off half crazed. The policies that were passed in secret were designed to help to to, quote unquote protect kids who had made gender transition, transition decisions in secret to keep everything in secret. I'm thinking if you're a parent, if you're an educator, if you are responsible for the well-being of, say, an 8-, 9-, 10-year-old child who is experiencing gender dysphoria, I didn't get anything in any of what I've read in your case with uh, Elizabeth and Lorianne, that they were against gender transition and that's why they were doing it, or that they were trying to punish these kids because they were trying to do it. Rather, they were saying, look, if a child has a legitimate concern about gender dysphoria and they share that with the teacher, we have an obligation to share that with the parents. I mean, it, it, that's, it sounds like that's what at the core of what Elizabeth and Lorianne are fighting for.
3: Yeah, this has nothing to do with being anti-gay or anti-transgender. Our clients, and and most teachers out there, I mean, the overwhelming majority, are very supportive of their LGBT students. They love them, they care about them, They they, they have gay friends, but this is not about that. This is about, you know, even, and by the way, in our case, we have a transgender medical expert who says, who... Obviously, this person transitioned, but mm-hmm. even this person says it's dangerous for a little, a little kid to do this without their parents knowing. I mean, it's mm-hmm. very serious. There's comorbid psychiatric issues that need to be dealt with. So it was all of, always about caring for their, ch- their students, wanting the best for them. And if they want to go down this road, they've got to at least keep their parents in the loop. Um, yeah. that, that's really what it boils down to.
0: Yeah, keep the parents in the loop, and also allow these women of faith to be able to say, "Look, my faith dictates, mandates that I take this position." I mean, that we inform the parents, that we that we deal with the issue head on. That they're not trying to hold Bible studies and do gay conversion therapy with these kids who have gender dysphoria. They're just Christian women teaching in the public school who say, "Look, I will teach you know your your whatever the you know the uh, course requirements are. I will uphold that, but I don't have to put my Christianity." in the closet or in the drawer of my desk or leave it at home when this is going on and be complicit with that. And I think that's the important thing uh, that we're discussing. Uh, Paul, talk about what the next steps are and what other cases are you working with with your firm? Take about the last 60 seconds of our time together and let our listeners know what the LaMandry firm is doing in San Diego and all over the country.
3: Well, thank you. Yes. So the next steps of this case are we have a we have to get discovery going. We're going to be amending the complaint, like I said, to add the governor and the attorney general. But we're going to serve written discovery pretty quickly. Move for summary judgment. We'll probably take some depositions, but we'll we'll move for summary judgment. Get the case um, concluded, and I'm sure the other side will appeal, and we'll just take it from there. But uh, the Thomas More Society is a public interest firm based in Chicago, where their special counsel, and we handle a lot of the West Coast cases. We have so many cases. I, I would definitely not be able to address them in 60 seconds but that um, the you know religious liberties under a vicious attack in California as you know Roger so we're you know our phones are ringing off the hook and we're trying to help as many people as we can but we're very pleased with this win and we give um, you know all glory to God and we're going to continue fighting these good these good fights
0: I love it. I love it. Paul, thank you for your heart for this. Uh, Thanks for your time today to get our listeners up to speed. Where do we find you online if we want to track some of the cases that you guys are uh, following, either with Lamandry or with Thomas More Society?
3: thomasmoresociety.org, and more has one O, thomasmoresociety.org
0: okay very good well we've got that down now and we'll link that up at thebottomlineshow.com as well paul jonah with the thomas more society thank you for this great news thanks for explaining why we should be rejoicing for elizabeth mirabelli and laurianne west a little more fully for us and we'll look forward to our next update stay dry brother here from all Absolutely. of us here at the bottom thanks line show. show okay thanks roger well thank you paul it's always great to get these updates especially on behalf of these two women who are putting their faith first but also and you remember the apostle paul you know, it, 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 in Roman saying, hey, look, I'm a Roman citizen. If this is something that needs to go before the government, this is something that needs to be explained and uh, explained to us. So we're grateful for this victory and hope they'll be in the classroom very soon. Some final thoughts on this issue in just a moment as the bottom line continues.
4: Call personal injury attorney Stephanie Cover of Cover Law first after an accident. Friends or family might tell you to get in touch with the insurance company for the party at fault first, but this is wrong. Stephanie knows countless myths that surround personal injury law, and she will help you separate fact from fiction. Stephanie worked directly for insurance companies for decades, and she knows how to navigate the process. You may wonder if your injury is too minor to warrant an attorney representing you. Stephanie can help you figure that part out with a free call, and she will tell you honestly if she thinks it's worth pursuing. Sometimes injured people are concerned about going to trial, but Stephanie prides herself on her ability to stay out of a courtroom because it typically means that she can maximize the amount you will actually receive. Don't make these decisions on your own. Contact Stephanie Cover at kbrightradio.com Cover. That's C-O-V-E-R.
0: My thanks again to Paul Jonah, an attorney with the Thomas More Society, uh, for stepping up and uh, helping us. And uh, Thomas More, of course, is one O in more by the way, it's Thomas, M-O-R-E, Society. Uh, Paul has been on this case involving two teachers, two middle school teachers, one Elizabeth Mirabili and the other one, Loriann West. They teach at Rincon Middle School in Escondido Union School District. And they basically took issue with the fact that the state of California worked behind the scenes to basically pass legislation that would force anyone working for a public school in California to withhold information from parents with reg- or grandparents if they're the custodial guardians uh, with regard to a student who might have gender dysphoria. And the reason this is so insidious is first and foremost, it implies that these two women, because they're Christian and they did not want to go along with the mandate, somehow hate the kids and they're anti-LGBTQ. And as you heard their attorney, Paul Jonas, say quite the opposite. These are women who love their profession. They love God. They love America. They want to be educators. They want to help these kids. And if they saw a child who was wrestling with gender dysphoria or the LGBTQ issue, the last thing they would do is shame them, harm them, or hurt them. But rather to say, let's have a conversation. How many kids are wrestling with gender dysphoria right now? Some estimates are that in Generation Alpha, which is the group coming along after Generation Z, it's one out of every five kids is asking the question, am I transgender? Am I gay? Am I lesbian? Now, most statistics, if you read the real science, will tell you that 90% of the kids who might have that feeling when they're going through puberty will outgrow it. So, I mean, it really is just one of those, gosh, I wonder, you know, and and it's a good idea. We always tell parents in the youth worker world, listen more than you lecture when it comes to something like that. But in this case here, the idea that a child might confide in a teacher saying, I think I'm transgender, and then the teacher would be required to not tell the parents in the same way that. If a child has uh, gender dysphoria and is looking for counseling, and now the state of California says, well, you can't go to a Christian counselor because they'll use the Bible. They'll try to talk you out of it. Well, what if they're questioning? Isn't the whole idea with questioning that you can ask questions and make up your own decision, your own mind? Well, I'm grateful for the uh, Thomas More Society for standing in the gap for uh, these two women who have uh, fought bravely in uh, (laughs) for their rights, constitutional rights, not to punish anybody, but just to say, look, as Christians, we have the right to say, I'm going to object to this law based on my deeply and sincerely held religious beliefs. And kudos to uh, Judge Roger Benitez of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of California that ruled in their favor back in September and then ruled last week that the school has to let them back in the classroom. That is good news indeed here on the Super Tuesday. For our KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. And Rabbi Schneider with Discovering the Jewish Jesus coming up next. For those who remain on the network, we have a very interesting, well, an update with Stephanie Cover of Cover Law, and a very interesting statistic with regard to what's happening in the educational world on a collegiate level. You wonder why the left has gotten everything so progressive in colleges, and where all is all that coming from? What if I told you that the amount of money that's being raised by funneled into these Ivy League schools in particular is in the billions of dollars and why that might be the reason why some of these schools are so left-leaning. We'll take a look at that coming up next as the bottom line continues. Well, welcome back or welcome, depending on if you're tuning in for the last half hour or you've been listening to the whole program today here on The Bottom Line Show. Uh, welcome to the Super Tuesday edition of The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Of course, the New Hampshire primary is going on right now, and we'll have the updates tomorrow on The Bottom Line Show. And then Thursday, of course, we'll have our postmortems from Iowa and New Hampshire um, with uh, Bob Duco and all the rest of the guys. Um, coming up on we'll record that on wednesday if you subscribe to the national crawford roundtable podcast we post it somewhere around noon on wednesday but on apple podcast stitcher tune in wherever you get that uh, you can also find it on our website at crawfordmediagroup.net and then of course we have the broadcast release uh coming up every thursday um on the bottom line show and we're grateful for that by the way uh, before we go any further here i did want to uh, mention something with regard to um the, the National Crawford Roundtable, and that is when people support the ministry of preborn, and they do so, you know, contacting us on the website. Um, it's interesting to see. Oh, hang on a second. There we go. How many people reach out to us through uh, the online world and on the web? I want to thank a couple of folks before we go any further. Fred and Patty of Manhattan Beach made a two hundred eighty dollar donation to preborn over the weekend. Um, through the, uh, the KBRT uh, website uh, during the National Crawford Roundtable broadcast uh, appearing. And also Deborah in Santa Cruz made a $56 donation. And I, we're so grateful for those donations that $280 means 10 ultrasounds will be provided by the gift that Fred and Patty gave. And Fred, Patty, thank you so much uh, for making that contribution. Also, Deborah's gift of $56 means two more kids. So that's 12 kids just this weekend alone whose lives will be saved because of the work of Preborn. Interesting. Scott Wilder from Preborn is going to join me um, coming up next week, and we're going to talk about this being Sanctity of Life Month. But your $28 donation is completely tax-deductible, and every single penny of the $28 you donate. People ask, well, how much of it goes to paying for radio ads, and how much goes to overhead and salaries? Because some of these nonprofits, like with the uh, American Cancer Society, Susan Susan G. Komen for the Cure, when they had that deal with the NFL and all the guys who wear pink things during October, and you'd buy all this memorabilia, And you think, okay, I'm donating money to cancer research. For every dollar you spent on that research, you know how much actually went to cancer? Eight cents. 92 cents of every dollar went to the people who made the shirts and the hats and the buttons. Eight cents with the American Cancer Society. But in this case here, Deborah's $56 donation to preborn means that two ultrasounds. It costs twenty-eight dollars on average for one ultrasound appointment. By the time you factor in everything that goes into those costs, and she paid for two of them with her donation. Every single penny Deborah went to that, and Fred and Patty, same thing. Your two hundred eighty-dollar donation covers ten. Thank you so much for that. Eight three three eight five zero. Baby is the number to call or go online to kbrightradio.com forward slash. Uh, well, just look for the uh, uh, the uh, the preborn banner and make your best donation today. Speaking of donated funds, and we were talking about the educational world, and my thanks again to Paul Jonah from the Thomas More Society for giving us the update out of Escondido, the two uh, teachers who um, basically put their necks out to say, we are Christians and we will not support the California plan that says that teachers are not to tell the parents if their students come to them and say i think i might be transgender and uh Rincon middle school teachers elizabeth mirabelli and Ann west are back in the classroom now via a court order that says to the school you can't suspend them put them on paid administrative leave for a year you can't keep them on the sidelines and keep them from teaching their students simply because they're not doing what you did in secret the kid, if the kid's health is the best interest, then everything that should, is being done should be done to help the children. And it doesn't mean keeping all that stuff a secret. But then you wonder, okay, well, the public schools are like this in K-12 through 12 education. What happened? Why is the college system gotten so crazy? What was up with the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard and Stanford and their anti-Semitism? Well, how, check this out. <laughs> you wonder where all this money comes from. Joe Biden, we found out, after uh, he left office, the Biden-Penn Library at the University of Pennsylvania, Joe Biden had a vice presidential library. And it was just staffed to the gills with all sorts of things. Just, I mean, those are big opportunities for high-level donors to donate money. They build a library in honor of this guy. But through our friends at Judicial Watch discovered that $80 million of seed money for the Biden-Penn Library came from the Chinese Communist Party. So it shouldn't be a surprise then that an organization called the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy published a report last week that was re- actually the report was released in November, but the report of the publishing of this came out last week that says at least 100 American colleges and universities illegally withheld information on approximately, are you ready for this? $13 billion in undocumented contributions from foreign governments many of which are, and they use the term, authoritarianism. The Institute for Study on Global Antisemitism and Policies report is called The Corruption of the American Mind, How Concealed Foreign Funding of Higher Education in the U.S. Predicts the Erosion of Democratic Values and Antisemitic Sentiment on Campus. The report has received renewed attention following the testimonies last month in the House of Representatives about that. Check this out, for example. The largest identified source of undocumented funding for colleges and universities was the Gulf Nation of Qatar. Qatar, gave, between 2014 and 2019, the government of Qatar donated $2.7 billion to U.S. universities. Two of the three other countries that donated more than a billion dollars in undocumented colleges uh, to colleges and universities were China and Saudi Arabia. They gave 1.2 million and billion and a billion dollars, $1.2 billion and a billion, respectively. The UK has donated $1.5 billion, Bermuda, $900 million, Canada, $900 million, Hong Kong, China, Japan, Switzerland, United Arab Emirates, the list goes on. Carnegie Mellon University was the school that received the most undocumented funding, $1.5 billion during a five-year period. Cornell University was the only other institution to receive more than a billion dollars. And again, these are undocumented gifts. Try to make a $100 donation to a Christian university and then take that donation on your tax return as a nonprofit and see how far that gets you. And yet the governments of these nations... MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, 860 million dollars. Yale University, 500 million. University of Chicago, 365. Texas A&M, 521. And there are some faith-based schools, or I should say religious schools that also fall into the category as well. Catholic affiliated uh, Notre Dame, 46 million dollars. Brigham Young University, prominent Mormon school, 323 million dollars in unreported funding from foreign governments. So the next time you wonder why the left-leaning schools lean as left as they do, trust me, in the nonprofit world there are undesignated funds and there are designated funds. If your church has a building campaign, and people make a donation and they want it to go to the building campaign, they'll say, here's my check for $1,000 for the building campaign. It is against the law for your church to take that money and put it into the youth group fund or to pay salaries out of it. That money has to be used for the building fund. Most people are okay with that. Some people will say general fund undesignated and that's really cool. Trust me in the nonprofit world, whenever a nonprofit organization gets an undesignated gift, they love that. But at least those are documented. We're talking 13 billion with a B dollars of monies from governments that have value systems that are hostile to the US, funding American institutions from Carnegie Mellon to MIT, johns hopkins but even byu and notre dame yikes we'll put the whole list up at thebottomlineshow.com uh stephanie cover standing by i hope she can stand in the studio after me getting all this hot air in here getting all riled up about it we'll have our monthly update with stephanie my favorite personal injury attorney coming up next as the bottom line continues For more than 50 years, Dennis Wilson has been offering better alternatives to what the market offers when it comes to investments like certificates of deposit and real estate investment trusts. Dennis's 3D account pays even better than market interest rate. Here's Dennis to explain.
2: So what is a 3D account and how does it work? A 3D account is a real estate backed investment without Wall Street risk. It pays an amazing interest of 7% for the next three years. At the end of three years, you can take your money out, so you can see it's definitely not a REIT, or you can reinvest it at 7% in a new program. Go ahead and call today and ask about the 7% account. And then while you're on the phone, and ask about our accounts that are at even higher amounts for funds over 250000
0: Learn more about Dennis Wilson's 3D Money Account, the better alternative to the Real Estate Investment Trust. Call 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Wilson Financial, simply better alternatives. Well, Stephanie Cover is with me in studio today. It's always a pleasure to have Stephanie, and especially as we're kicking off the new year, talking about a topic of personal personal injury law that Oftentimes, it's kind of taboo. First, I should mention that if you don't have Stephanie Cover's name and number, if you don't have it by (laughs) now— Well, I, all I can say is Stephanie with an F, Cover is in cover, 877-214-4935. If it's easier, you go to kbrightradio.com forward slash cover law and you can do the whole thing online. You can kind of get the ball rolling, get your information in with Stephanie, even before you have an accident. And Stephanie, welcome back to the Bottom Line Show.
5: Thank you for having me, Roger. The
0: reason it's so important to have that stuff ready is because when you have an accident, and I speak from personal experience, you go into a state of shock. You, you didn't expect it to happen. They don't call it an on purpose. They call it an accident. Right. So you don't know what's coming. And then it happens, and you need legal help, and you don't always know where to go. So having a case load kind of set up already with Stephanie, that's one less thing to do. But I know one of the number one complaints that you probably hear, especially from Christians, is but why should I hire an attorney? Because I'm not trying to sue anybody, and I don't want to go to court. Now, I would respectfully disagree with that, but I want to give you first opportunity. The floor is now, (laughs) Stephanie, we'll give you first shot at this.
5: Well, first off, when you're involved in the motor vehicle collision and another person's responsible, it's their insurance company who are strangers to you. Uh, will be evaluating your case.
0: And they don't care about you, by the way. I mean, I, we're not sounding dispassionate, but Stephanie used to work as an attorney for insurance companies, and I'm just saying this so you don't have to. The insurance company does not care about you.
5: Exactly. They
0: care about their shareholders, not about you.
5: Okay. It's non-Christian organization.
0: Right, exactly. It's, all,
5: it's the bottom line is the dollar. Sure. exactly. So when they work with you, they're... They may be very nice and some of them may truly be nice, but their job is a way in a way is to find holes in what you're seeing uh, in respect to the issue of liability um, and thinking how they can position you without you realizing it in their best interest.
0: So they'll ask you questions to try to see if they can find a weakness and then poke that hole to try to make your case look more flimsy so therefore they don't have to pay as much Yes, because they don't care about you yes (laughs) and
5: i can give you a very quick example i just thought of Mm -hmm. um i I, there's a pastor who i who i have a case with uh with k and he referred me uh a lady who was involved um she was a pedestrian and was hit by a vehicle oh no um the insurance carrier um kept I sent them a letter representation immediately and the insurance carrier additionally was trying to ignore my letters. Mm -hmm. And they kept sending letters to the lady um, disputing liability type questions.
0: Instead of dealing with you as her attorney. Yes. Interesting. So the insurance company knows you're the attorney, but they send the letters to her instead of to you.
5: Yes. Okay,
0: because they don't care about her. Yes, Mm -hmm. but
5: in this instance, I know the legal managers. Um, Mm. Because
0: you used to work for these people. Yes. And with these people.
5: Yes. Yes. So I went ahead and I said, one, you don't contact my client because she's not feeling well and she's resting. And I sent a letter of representation so that I can handle all of the hardship things and her... And so she can focus on getting better. Mm-hmm. Second, why are you sending her questions on liability when this is obviously the the fault of the person that you represent? And then I said, by the way, my name is Stephanie Cover, and I know these people, and I've worked for you for these many years. And what I'm saying is truth.
0: Mm-hmm. And what kind of response did you get?
5: Um, we're offering you the policy limits. <laughs> <laughs> Which is all
0: all anyone's asking for. Stephanie Cover's with me today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. If you, she's the only personal injury attorney we've ever recommended and the only one we ever will, 877-214-4935. And we're talking about why it's important when you get involved in a personal injury case, whether it's a car accident, slip and fall, dog bite. I mean, there's all different types of uh, things that you might not think requires this kind of legal muscle. The state system here in California is basically designed now to where if you don't have an attorney walking you through this, you're going to get run over, either by an insurance company or by law enforcement. They just want the case done and off the books for the lowest amount of money out of their pocket. So if you want someone who's going to fight for it, Stephanie said, look, this like you just said, the full policy limit, you get that auto insurance policy and it's got those limits on it, what they would pay up to. The difference between getting the full policy amount and not getting the full policy amount is a phone call to Stephanie Cover because she could say, look, this is what you're, you sold them this policy that said you would pay this if this happened. We're just asking you to do what you said you would do.
5: Exactly. Mm Wow. Exactly.
0: Yeah, just tell the truth and, and honor your agreement. I mean...
5: Yes, and because they knew who I was, they knew I was telling the truth. Right,
0: right. And, and so... they're like, darn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why'd they have to hire her? Um, you know, there's a big stigma a lot of Christians have about one of the most misread parts of Scripture. We forget the Old Testament. We forget that Moses was a judge and appointed judges, which meant people were coming to a court system back at, going back into old Israel days. Yes. And so God is not saying don't ever go to court. What he's saying in Scripture is if you're a Christian and somebody else is a Christian and you have a dispute, don't take it to an ungodly judge. Figure it out. You know, d- d- Do that, and that's good. But when it comes to personal injury attorney, Stephanie, I'm sure there are a lot of people who call you and say, well, yeah, I'd like to use you, but I don't want to sue anybody and I don't want to go to court. What is your response to that?
5: Well, the main reason you would use me and a call me right away is to stay out of court.
0: Oh, say that again. <laughs> say that again.
5: <laughs> to stay out of court and get a fair payment. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Stay out of court, get a fair payment. I like those too, so that's, (laughs) I'm sold.
5: (laughs) And and what it is is they, if they know you don't understand the system, for example, if someone asked me about um, repairs on my vehicle, I would not be the person who could challenge them or speak to them. I would Mm -hmm. have to have somebody who I knew who understand the mechanics of a vehicle to talk to them so they they can understand what that person's saying. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times on personal injury, people say, oh, I've seen these ads. It's really easy. I can just do Mm -hmm. it myself. And, And... People don't realize that when you don't do it right in the beginning, you're causing problems because there's misunderstandings. And it is the most litigious uh, area of civil litigation. And I believe the main reason is because people think they can do it by themselves. Mm -hmm. And they always create a mess Mm. unintentionally because they're trying their best, but they don't know the law.
0: You know, I was thinking as you were sharing this, Stephanie Cover, that when it comes to personal injury law, it's like auto mechanics. It's like auto body work. Right. It's like the, the type of thing where we think, OK, well, if I need to have some work done on my car, I'm going to hire a specialist. Right. And Because maybe there was a time when my grandpa could change his own oil and took the spark plugs not out and now. stuff like that. Not with these engines, not today. And the th- I would never, I mean, I, I think I've looked under the hood of my car twice in the past couple of years. I, somebody else does it because it's way too sophisticated for me. The legal system, and you and I have talked a lot about this, during COVID especially, there were so many changes to personal injury law. It was like you had to go back to pass the bar all over again, <laughs> basically. And But it is that complicated. So. You need an experienced guide. You need somebody who understands how the insurance companies work. That's two checks for Stephanie Covert because she used to work for the insurance companies. But then having the faith component and understanding what is biblical about the law. You know, understanding that God, you know, the the law is God's idea. I mean, the law that we have right now is to keep temporal, uh, sinful people from killing each other. I mean, that's uh, without Christ, I think that's what most people, we would turn into the Lord of the flies around here without that.
5: Right, like when uh, Moses had crossed the Red Sea and the people start growing, the Lord asked him to be the judge. And he even talked about people who had um, personal injury. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, was it intentional or not intentional? Yeah, those ax
0: heads flying off. And what happens when your ox scores another one? And I mean, but those were were personal injury cases. Yes. That's where they were.
5: And it's actually referred to in Exodus. Yeah. And the Lord is just looking... We all know he's the God of justice.
0: Amen. Amen. And
5: when people tell me I don't want to go to court and stuff, the whole idea is to avoid court. And the Lord does not want people to walk on you. They want you to respect you as a Christian, that you respect the Lord by honoring your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes. And taking care of yourself.
0: Preach. (laughs) it's,
5: It's just, you know, it's it's a way of honoring Him and doing good for yourself because He doesn't like to see us ill. At all. No.
0: No, He created us to be fruitful yes. and to be... The, the multiplication is not just get married and have kids. It's be the, whatever God has called you to do and equipped you to do, He wants you to do it. Exactly. And if your body is banged up and you can't do that, then th- this is His creation we're talking about. Right. You know? So if, if we were taking care of His creation... And it, it's really insulting to God to just say, well, you deserve to have a broken leg or whatever and, and not be able to have any way of repairing that.
5: Yeah. I mean, we're very concerned and we have very loud voices about creation and, and uh, the person when we talk about children right. and babies, mm-hmm. but it's also the same thing for adults. Yes. yes. And we need to realize that it's the same God, it's the same law, and we need to honor him mm-hmm. by following what. He says is correct.
0: So I'm not going to misconstrue this here, but this, please take this in the spirit in which it's, I'm sharing it. Stephanie Cover. you really are honoring God if you get in a personal injury accident by calling Stephanie, because this is not to say we're exalting Stephanie, but no. rather to say <laughs> I know. <laughs> see, I do. I've known not you well all. enough to know you would say don't no. don't say that. But but I'm the, a servant. But absolutely, and that's but that's the reason why you want to call because I know from personal experience, you know, from a case that I was involved in from. Another case that will hopefully be resolved soon involving one of my children. That um, and another case that did involve one of my kids that didn't go in his favor. But I mean, you did. I mean, didn't go in his favor, but it, you justice was served. You know, in in, in Jake's case, you know, where he had a, yes. an accident, and there was a, a part he was responsible for, and you helped make that possible. So it was it was kind of an expensive lesson for him to learn. But at least he was getting good legal counsel, and he was. We knew he wasn't getting ripped off because that was the biggest concern I had. Was it seemed like someone was coming after him. And he was going to get ripped off and the counsel you gave him was great
5: yeah uh, i am not exalting myself by any means but what i'm saying is it really bothers me when i hear people who are injured and don't do anything about it right you know because i'm not saying i'll help you um, because i i need and want business it's because i listen to people and um, if I feel like can, I can benefit them, I will. But many yes. times I tell people, I had like two yesterday. I basically gave them directions and I said, you need this money. You're really not that injured. You know, this is a suggestion for you to maybe follow in this regard. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to do that for people like that. Um, they wanted to hire me, but I said, y- you don't need to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, just you know. stay the course with what you're doing. Yes. And again, that's to your integrity that says, you know, there are a lot of, uh, we see the ads, the big billboards and TV ads and whatever, and they're just chasing, we call them ambulance chasers for a reason. That's certainly not the case with Stephanie Cover, the way she practices personal injury law. 877 214 4935, put it in your contacts, Stephanie with an F and uh, Cover as in cover. Or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Cover Law and sign up that way too. Uh, Stephanie, Happy New Year. Welcome to thank 2024. You. And congratulations, because I know that uh, uh, you've got a big day in the Cover family coming up, but with the wedding of one of your sons. And, yes. Uh, and uh, Mother of the Bride is beaming here, and I'm grateful that we spent some time here this close to wedding day. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for being with us, and God's richest blessings to you and Jim for the new year.
5: Thank you, and thank you for your blessing on my children.
0: Well, I'm so grateful for the partnership and the friendship with Jim and Stephanie Cover of Cover Law, 877-214-4935. If you don't have it in your contacts, why not? 877-214-4935 or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Cover. Some final thoughts in just a moment as the bottom line continues. One of the things I appreciate, and I know you do too, about pre-born is the fact that they tell you the truth about where you are in pregnancy. You know, it, it, it it's amazing how the National Institute of Health and the CDC wants to classify pregnancy as a quote-unquote illness so then they can prescribe quote-unquote treatment medication in the form of an abortion pill to end the abortion. Well, that's crazy. We know, you know and I know, that God creates each of us in the womb of our mothers. And he creates each of us uniquely for a purpose and 85 percent of the women who go to pre-born clinics and they don't hear the the propaganda from the abortion industry that says you your two choices are either abortion or misery that there are three options and the third one involves basically choosing life for the child and releasing that child for adoption. I want to thank a couple of people for their very generous donations to pre-born. Dean in National City made a $1,400 donation. Dave in Lake Forest, a $500 donation. Uh, and also Edward in Norfolk, Nebraska, who listens online with a $48 monthly dollar donation. Uh, go to kbrightradio.com. Click on the preborn banner and make your best donation today. It's completely tax deductible. 100% of your donation goes to ultrasound technology and we're saving lives and saving babies through preborn. Click on kbrightradio.com, hit the preborn banner today. My thanks again to Stephanie Cover, the only personal injury attorney I will ever recommend here on the Bottom Line show uh, for joining me in studio today, our monthly catch-up and of course she's got a big day right i'll mention this now uh, coming up this weekend her son jake's getting married and so jim and stephanie congratulations i know that you that it was tough to come in the studio this close to the wedding but thank you for doing that for us uh, make sure you have her name and number in your contacts you can either go to kbrightradio.com forward slash cover and that's cover as in cover c-o-v-e-r or call 877-214-4935 877-214-4935 If you get involved in a personal injury accident, you need to take action immediately, as our English friends would say, and contact Stephanie Cover, because the law is set up in such a way that it's not designed to protect you, the consumer. But that means you just need a good attorney to walk you through the process. When you think about what's happening in the education system, the waters have been corrupted because even so-called faith-based schools are being influenced by outside governments and things of that nature. When you see Christians who try to infiltrate the public school arena, like Paul Jonah from Thomas More Society shared with us earlier. When you think of Laurie West and uh, Mirabelle, who are there teaching at Rincon Middle School in Escondido and basically being told you will, we are forcing you to uh, hide the identity of transgender identified students who are thinking they might want to transition good for them for stepping up, having the legal muscle behind them and stepping up. We're living in tough times, brothers and sisters. It's going to get messy. There's a reason why God put the words of Ephesians 6 in there about the full armor of God. The spiritual battles are going to get more intense, but the victories are going to be, oh, more so sweet. Remember, momentary light afflictions in this life, eternal glory in the next. Stay armed and ready in Jesus' name. That's good news. And that's the bottom line.